Yes, thank you. All right, we're going to go to the book of John. John chapter 1, if you would. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Well, I'll tell you what. Singing in the morning is a challenge, especially when you have to get up front and sing with breath control. And uh, singing after you've eaten, that's always a challenge. Preaching to people that didn't get a lot of sleep can be a challenge. All right, how many of you found out that you have a cabin mate that snores last night? Anybody have one? Oh, yeah. How many of you are the cabin mate that snores? Yeah, okay. There is a trick for this. You know those little uh, foam earplugs? If you have a cabin mate that snores tonight, you take those foam earplugs and you shove them up the nostril of the person. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. All right. John chapter 1. Or John 1, yes. You probably don't know the name Benjamin Hanby, but you might be familiar with some things he wrote. Benjamin Russell Hanby was a preacher from Westerville, Ohio. Westerville is right outside of Columbus. And he, was, uh, he lived in the 1800s. In fact, he was a preacher in the United Brethren Church. He and his father, both his father William Hanby, was a minister as well. They lived at a time when the Underground Railroad was in operation. You remember that was the, the movement to help slaves relocate out of the South to Northern states to find their freedom. So both Benjamin Hanby and his dad were involved heavily in the Underground Railroad. He was not only a preacher, he wrote some songs. In fact, he wrote a fun song. The very first song ever written about Santa Claus up on the housetop was written by Russell Hanby. But the most important song he ever wrote, he wrote just a few weeks before he died, and he died of tuberculosis at age 33. The song was called, Who Is He? In fact, it's often associated as a Christmas song, although only the first line mentions the Savior's birth. You might have heard it this Christmas. Here are some of the lines. Who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Who is he in deep distress fasting in the wilderness? Lo, at midnight, who is he prays in dark Gethsemane? Who is he on yonder tree dies in grief and agony? Who is he that from the grave comes to succor, help, and save? Who is he that from his throne rules through all the worlds alone? Tis the Lord. A wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. That question by Benjamin Russell Hanby, who is he? I tell you, that is the most important question we could possibly consider at camp this week. Who is Jesus? That's the title for this message. Yesterday we looked at Jesus' incarnation when God became man. Today we're going to look at His identification. Who is Jesus? So we're in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Let me read the first four verses with you. John 1. And as a text, you could write down John 1, 1 to 14. We're actually going to hit highlights throughout this book of John. I'll explain that. But John 1, 1 to 14. Let me just read verses 1 to 4. If you've never memorized this section of Scripture, this is a really important passage of Scripture. And I'm going to ask you to do this. Uh, tr follow, follow along in your Bible, okay? So I'll tell you in my testimony this morning, I grew up in a church early on in my life where they didn't preach the Bible, didn't believe the Bible. And so when I started going to a Bible-preaching church, it was all new to me to open up the Bible and follow along. Some of you have been in church your whole life, and you kind of courteously or maybe not so courteously flop your Bible open but you really don't engage, I, I want to urge you to study God's Word. Look at His Word. What I say as the preacher, I'm commenting on God's Word. What lasts forever is what God said. So I really want you to follow along. And take some notes. I'll make it easy for you to take notes. But these are 
powerful and important scriptures you'll use your whole life. Look at uh, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, what do you notice in the Bible there about the word Word? Yeah, it's capitalized. Okay, in the beginning was the Word. That's like when you see Lord capitalized. It's a title, okay? Like uh, we talked about President last night. Well, in the United States, Mr. President would be capitalized. You might be the president of your class in your school, or you might be the president of a corporation. But in the U.S., if you're the president of the country, that P would be capitalized. Okay, well, in the Bible, Lord and Word, in this case, are capitalized because they're titles. I'll explain that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. (laughs) Okay, so in the beginning was the Word, got it. And he was with God. Yeah, okay, if you're in the beginning, that, who else would you be with? There's nobody else there. He's with God, and he was God. Wow, keep reading. All things, I'm sorry, verse 2 I missed, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Okay, so what we know so far, this person called the Word was in the beginning. In the beginning, does that remind you of any other book of the Bible? What book opens up within the beginning? Genesis, yeah. In fact, what verse is in the beginning God created? Genesis 1.1, first verse of the entire Bible, in the beginning. You think the Apostle John might be thinking of Genesis as he's writing these words? Sure. In the beginning, and all the Jews would know, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning was the Word. Hmm, the Word? Who's the Word? Well, he was with God. Okay. And he was God. Hmm. And all things were created by him. Huh. Then go to verse 14. Slide on down. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Okay, see if you can do a little mental deduction here. So in the beginning is this person called the word. He was with God. He was God. And then he became human. Who is that, folks? That's Jesus Christ. That's who we're going to look at this morning. Interesting, John was the last of the four Gospels written. You know, we have four Gospels. Uh, Name for me the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Sometimes the first three of those are called synoptic Gospels. Have any of you, other than college kids, have any of you ever heard the term synoptic? Okay, how many of you have gone to a Christian school sometime in your life? Okay, how many of you are homeschooled? Okay, so some of you, we knew, okay, we already knew that. Uh, I have homeschoolers at my house. So, and how many of you are in public school? Okay, and how many of you have been in church ever since you were an elementary school kid or younger? Okay, a lot of you. The term synoptic, I need to explain that to you. Synoptic, S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C. Syn, optic. S-Y-N comes from the term synonym or synchronized. If we all synchronized our watches, we would get our watches on what? the same time. If you use a synonym, synonyms are words that mean the same. Okay, so sin means same. Optic. Now, I wear, I wear contact lenses because I don't have perfect vision. I can see fine to read, but all of you would be a little blurry back there if I didn't have optical lenses. So optics has to do with the way you see. Synoptic means to see the same. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're synoptic gospels in this sense. They give you a more of a traditional biography of Jesus' life. I mean, if you want to read the birth account of Jesus, which two books of the Bible give you the birth account of Jesus? Matthew and Luke. Yeah, you probably heard that during Christmas, okay? So you got Matthew and Luke, but John is different. 
Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote the more traditional biography of Jesus' life, John gives us what we theologically call an apologetic. Now, apologi- we think apologizes, I'm sorry, I did something. No, apology is a defense of the faith. John gives you a declaration that Jesus was not just some great man who lived in this world. He is God. And that's where we're looking today. The Gospel of John is a declaration that Jesus is not just some incredible man. Why do people still talk about Jesus 2,000 years after he died? Who else in history do you hear constantly about 2,000 years after they're gone? People have started churches in his name. People have started ministries in his name. More books have been written about Jesus than any person who ever lived. Hospitals have been founded in his name. Relief organizations have been founded in his name. Every week, people go to houses of worship to adore his name. Who is he? What made him so important? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So I'm going to start with this in John chapter 1. I'm going to call this the preface of his work. The preface of his work. Preface, P-R-E, face, preface. And we're going to break it down three ways. We'll look at the preface, the purpose, and the proof. Okay, so the preface of his work, and you just read it. It's an introduction to who Jesus is. Now, in the beginning was the Word. Humanly, we know that God used people to write his Word. So now, if people wrote it, then is it really God's Word? Well, sometimes you'll have a boss will say to a secretary, hey, would you take a letter for me? And if she's trained, she'll, my wife, secretarial administration major in college, she learned how to do shorthand or dictation. So if somebody wants to dictate a letter, she could write it down shorthand and then type it up for them later. The writers of the Bible, when they wrote, they did not go into some kind of a trance and write. God used their unique personalities. He used their unique vocabularies. But it's interesting, this one who wrote the Gospel of John is obviously John. He was the apostle. He wrote five different books of the New Testament. So we know he wrote this one. What else did John write? Can you think of any other books? Yeah, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, John. And then what other book? Yeah, the Revelation. Yeah. Interesting. I want you to go to 1st John for a minute. 1st John chapter 5. 1 John 5, and uh, look at verse 7. Now, there are, there are some who think, well, I don't, I don't know that this was really part of the Word of God originally. I won't get into all that, but I, I believe it surely was. And I'll show you one of the reasons why. Verse 7 says, There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That is the clearest declaration of the Trinity we have. Some say, well, not a whole lot of ancient Bible manuscripts that contain that passage. They think it was added later to be a defense of the uh, Trinity. Everybody agrees that what is declared there is true to Scripture. There's the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Some say it was added. I believe that Jesus promised His Word would be kept, and that is part of His Word. But I'll tell you the reason. Primarily, I understand that to be true. Interesting, when we talk about the Trinity, we usually talk about the Father, the who? The Son, and then... The Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit? Yeah. What's the term used here? Word. Interesting. John's the only one who uses that term. The Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And then you go back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So who is this person? Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be dominions or thrones or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him, and by Him all things consist. That's verse uh, 17. So Jesus Christ is the Creator. This is the introduction to the book. Okay, this is not just the baby who was born in a manger. 
This is eternal God who forever existed. He's the Word. He's the eternal Word. The term Word is the, the word logos, okay? And that's the Greek term from which we get words like logo or logic. When, when my kids were little, they could identify all the fast food restaurants before they could read. Oh, McDonald's, Wendy's. You know why? Well, they could see the golden arches, and that was what? McDonald's. They see the freckle-faced girl on the square hamburger. That was Wendy's. They see the bell tower, and they know Taco Bell. So they'd see a logo, and the logo would create a concept. Uh, one of the simplest logos in all the world is a little swoosh. What company has the swoosh? Nike, you know, whatever you think of Nike, you can't help but identify Nike. It's got that simple little swoosh on there. Okay, a logo is a, is a brief, or is a simple little uh, icon, a picture that conveys an idea. Now, the word logos also is behind the word logic. So right now, I'm, it's, I know it's early in the morning, and I'm trying to get you to use some logic. I'm talking about things like synoptic, and I'm using some big letter words. Well, I'm, I'm reasoning with you. Getting your mind to work, okay? So logos is expressing in words what you're thinking in your mind. Some of you, I can tell what you're thinking right now. I can't really. I don't know your very thoughts, but a few of you are thinking, man, I should have slept more last night, okay? If you're thinking, boy, I'd rather be eating biscuits and gravy right now than sitting here. Some of you are thinking, I can't wait to do whatever later on, and some of you are not thinking anything. Okay, now, I don't really know your thoughts. I can just kind of make deductions. But you know what I'm thinking right now. You know why? I'm putting my thoughts into what? Words. Okay, so that's the term logos. In the beginning was the word. He is the absolute expression of all who God is and what God thinks. Jesus Christ made known God to men because He is God among men. He's God who became man. So that's the introduction to this book. Okay, now we're going to do something. How many of you read more than just what is assigned in school? How many of you will do some reading outside of school? Anybody here? Okay, me too. I'm always reading something. Read the Bible every day. Read some other books to help me. Now, uh, confession. How many of you have ever jumped ahead to the end of the book to see if it's really worth reading? Okay, all right. Now, I always hated doing that. But in this case, we're going to do that. Okay, we have looked at the preface of his work now I want you to see what we're calling the purpose of his writing. The purpose of his writing. Number two, and jump to the back of the book. Okay, it's actually John 20, verse 21 is the last chapter. But go to John 20 and look at verses 30 and 31 with me. John 20, chapter 21 is kind of like we would speak of an appendix or an epilogue. It's, it's where Peter is restored to fellowship after he had denied the Lord. It's a powerful chapter. But uh, as John 20 is winding up John's account of Jesus' life, he gives two simple verses here. I want you to follow along. I want you to think about this. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Now, what does he mean by signs there? What's another uh, concept for the idea of signs? Miracles. Yeah, there are other miracles he did that aren't recorded. Can you imagine? Even the four Gospels don't tell us everything Jesus ever did. In fact, uh, if you go to the very last words of this book, jump ahead for a second, John 21, verse 25. There are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself cannot contain the books that should be written. Amen. Jesus did so much, there is no way you could ever put it all down in print. Imagine that. Okay, so back to John 20, 30. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? 
that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the what? The Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. Since I'm writing this, you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. I wrote in the margin of my Bible right there, purpose statement. Purpose statement. How many of you ever had to write a formal paper in school, and it was a paper that you had to have a purpose statement or a thesis to your writing? Any of you ever have, have to do a formal paper? I'm impressed. Good. Okay, so that's what John does here. He, John will give you a purpose statement for the book he writes. Uh, in 1 John, for instance, he tells us, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. He tells you, here's why I wrote 1 John. Okay, in Revelation chapter 1, he says it, this is a, a revelation of Jesus Christ, of things that are and that were and are to come. He's telling you, here's a record. It's a prophetic book. Well, in John 20, he says, okay, here's why I wrote this book. I want you to believe in Jesus Christ, but not just that he was this incredible person. I want you to believe that he's the Son of God, and that so believing you'll have what? Life through his name. Okay, so that's the purpose of his writing. So we have the preface of his work. We have the purpose of his writing. But one last area we're going to spend our time in today, number three, is the proof of his witness. The proof of his witness. Okay, I'm going to give you some proofs to these claims, that proofs that Jesus said, John said, he is not just a great human who lived 2,000 years ago. Who is he? One of my favorite states to visit is Colorado. Anybody here ever been to Colorado? Okay. I love Colorado. I live in Kansas City, Missouri. You know, Kansas City's a pretty flat area. I love when we go out to Colorado. Love the mountains. Um, you get to eastern Colorado, I mean, it's just kind of like twin sister of Kansas until you get out to the Front Range, you get to Denver area, and then you start getting up in the mountains. Colorado is a land of mountains. In fact, uh, there are 55 mountains that are 14,000 feet or more. Now, our tallest mountain in North America is Mount McKinley, or Denali. It's uh, 20,000 feet, okay? But on the continental U.S., we have a number of mountains that are 14,000 feet. And I've had the privilege over the years to go on some wilderness hikes with our men from my church. We'll go out every, uh, typically every August, and we'll climb one of the 14ers. Um, I have done 19 trips. I think I've climbed 18 different mountains in those years. So I, out of 55 14ers, I've, I've ascended to the peak of 18 of them, one of them twice. Okay? Now, 14ers are quite the experience. We, we camp at uh, Timberline, which is uh, right below 10,000 feet, which is where we'll camp. And then we'll climb up the rest of the 4,000. It usually takes all day. It's usually a long, long hike. And I remember one year we went out to do um, long, uh, I did long speak. One year we went out to do Mount Elbert. That's the tallest of the 14ers, Mount Elbert. And right next to Mount Elbert is Mount Massive. Both of them are 14,400 something. Elbert's just a little taller. Massive is right next to it. And I got thinking about it. Studying the book of John to me was a lot like taking a look at Colorado from one of those mountain peaks. Now I haven't been to every corner of Colorado. I haven't climbed every mountaintop in Colorado, but I've been to enough of those summits and enough places in Colorado that as an outsider, I could give you a pretty decent tour of Colorado. I could show you some pretty incredible sites that you would come away with a huge appreciation for Colorado, even though I wasn't native born and I've never even been a resident of Colorado. I've spent a lot of time there. 
but I've never resided there officially. 2017, I lived in the book of John. I camped out in the book of John. What I did, most years I'll read through the Bible in my personal quiet time, but in 2017, I just decided I'm, gonna, I'm just going to live in the Gospel of John. So I read it and reread it. Every day I'd read at least a chapter and go through it and through it. I pulled out a couple of commentaries. I remember I had the uh, Warren Wearsby commentary and the John Phillips commentary, and I would read the Bible first, and then I'd get some insights from that. I kept a notebook, which I always do, write down insights. I did word studies. I just lived like a person out in the wilderness, camped out in the book of John. I want to equate the Colorado visits to my my experience in the book of John. When I was spending time in the book of John, I found that there was so much that I'd never even realized that I learned about the Savior, about the Lord. As I'm living in the book of John, it's kind of like going up to one of those 14ers, and from a 14er, you can see for miles. It's incredible. In some of our 14er hikes, we've seen mountain goats, mountain rams, the the big bighorn sheep up there. We have seen rocks and structures that were miles and miles away. We've been caught in hailstorms and all kinds of things. You get a perspective up on the mountain that you don't get down in the valley. I want to challenge you to spend some time in the book of John. We're going to visit just two of the mountain peaks. Uh, What is the tallest mountain in the world? Do you remember? Mount Everest is over 29,000 feet, okay? So Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world. Uh, in the Himalayas, there are some other mountains that are in the 28 or 27,000 range. That's immense mountains. Now, if you never scaled any other mountains, I'll tell you, you do one 14er in your life, it'll be amazing. You get above 12,000 feet and you, you can hardly breathe. The oxygen's so thin. Think about Mount Everest is twice as tall plus of the 14ers that I've hiked. I mean, what's a 14er compared to that? There are some summits in Scripture that are like the Mount Everest of the Bible. And the first one that comes to my mind, the Mount Everest, is John chapter 3. I want you to go there with me. John chapter 3. We're going to talk about the proof of his witness. So John says, I'm writing that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. John chapter 3 doesn't take us long before we get into John's gospel, before we come to literally the Mount Everest of the Bible. In fact, John 3.16 would be the very pinnacle of the mountain. I remember one year I... The year we went out to do Mount Albert, and we ended up doing Mount Massive. Albert was to be a a Monday climb. We got out there on a Saturday, and going from Kansas City, you know, Kansas City's uh, probably around 1,000 feet above sea level, and where we're going to camp out is 10,000 feet, and what we're going to climb is 14,000 feet. So it takes flatlanders a little bit of time to acclimate to an environment where you don't have a lot of oxygen. I remember we got out there on a Saturday, and uh, we saw Mount Elbert, and of course in the summer it stays late, late. So a couple guys like, why don't we do Mount Massive today, and we'll do Elbert on Monday. And so my brother-in-law and two other guys and I decided, all right, let's go do Massive. So we, we go climbing up Massive, and it, it takes hours. We get to the top, and these clouds are coming in, and the clouds have socked in around us, and all of a sudden we start hearing some lightning bolts. Well, There is a rule of thumb that when you start seeing clouds gather around the peak and you start hearing thunder, you need to get off the peak. But me, I have never gotten to the top of a mountain without actually summoning. And and usually at the top, there's this brass little marker, that geological marker, that's the top of the mountain. And they usually have this little canister that you can sign your name and say, you made it. Well, my brother-in-law and the two high school kids we were with, we got to the top, and they're like, okay, we're here. We, I said, we haven't gotten to the top yet. Like, no, we're heading down. This is crazy. I said, oh, well, I'm going to sign the registry. You guys go ahead. So I'm, I'm going over to sign the registry. 
I mean, there is lightning in the air and little zaps on the rocks. I'm really stupid. I should not be up here, right? But so help me, I'm going to find that brass thing and sign the registry. So I do, and all of a sudden, lightning starts zapping all around me. I've never actually been in the middle of lightning in the clouds, you know, and I now am. I found this little cubby hole, I don't know, a couple hundred yards from where I came up there. So I go running, all of a sudden it's starting to rain, and uh, lightning is getting more intense, and I thought, I might get stuck up here. Back then I had this little mini camcorder. I used to have these little, uh, little pieces of uh, recording tape that you'd put in there. And I, I literally was making my last will and testament to my wife. Honey, I don't know if I'm going to make it off. I mean, it's really one of those moments, right? <laughs> lightning and hail and stuff, and it went on for like, 45 minutes. Finally, when that passed, I'm now by myself. The others had gone ahead. I am trucking it down, trying to get off that mountain as fast as I can. Well, I, I got exposed to um, altitude sickness because I hadn't acclimated. So by the time I get to the bottom, I can barely walk and lean my head on my hiking stick. I thought I am going to miss Mount Albert on Monday. Thankfully, I, Sunday we had uh, church in the, in the camp fire area, the camp setup that we had. I recovered, and Monday I was able to do Albert. But the reason I was so determined, I'm getting to the top, is I want to see that little geographical marker at the top that says this is the summit. This is the highest point. John 3.16 is the geological marker. It is the Mount Everest summit of the Bible. Okay, so let's get to it here. John 3, beginning in verse 1. These are some proofs of Jesus' witness. John 3, some of you are so familiar with this, you could just about quote it in your sleep. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. Now, many people believe that Jesus, uh, Nicodemus rather, was the chief teacher of a group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the, were the 70 ruling elders of Israel. They were headed by the high priest, who would be the 71st member. Just, uh, Nicodemus was believed to be the chief teacher of these leaders of Israel, these devout students of Scripture. Verse 2, the same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, we don't know why he came at night. Maybe because Jesus was so busy during the day, be very likely. Or maybe he was afraid to be seen by the others. We don't know why. But he comes one night to have a meeting with Jesus. And he says, you have got to be from God. Well, I've, I've heard about these miracles. There is no way you could do miracles like this unless you're from God. So you would think that Jesus would... Um, compliment him, say, thank you, Nicodemus. What the Scripture tells us, he doesn't even engage in polite conversation. He just goes right to it. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, when you say verily in the Bible, verily is, uh, the, is the basis of our word verify or veracity. If you verify somebody's story, you're checking out whether or not it is true. Yeah. So verily, when you see verily in the Bible, wait, 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 I thought that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Wasn't everything Jesus said true? Yeah, it was. But listen, not everything Jesus said was equally important. Huh? Wasn't everything he said important? Well, like, uh, let's go get lunch wouldn't be as important as I am the way, the truth, and the life. you got to remember, when he was walking with the disciples, like, uh, you know, we're going to go over there, and we're going to spend the night here, and we'll go see so-and-so. But when you see a verily, verily in the Bible, that's like us underlining something or highlighting it or putting it in bold print. Don't miss this. Okay, so notice these words. Verily, verily, I say unto you, 
Except a man be born again, verse 3, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. All right, now I'm going to come back to this passage in a minute. Let me give you some context. I grew up in a United Methodist church as a kid. It was not a Bible-believing church. The, the preachers, the ministers I grew up under had been to seminaries where they were taught that Jesus was not God. Their, their teachers had taught them that Mary had Jesus through an illicit relationship with a Roman soldier. That's how he was conceived. They didn't believe that Jesus rose again from the dead in body. They didn't believe the Bible was the Word of God. So that's the kind of ministers I grew up under. Our, our church never taught the Bible. My dad got saved working at a place called Mobile Oil Company, Mobile Exxon, Mobile Oil Company in New Jersey, where I grew up. A co-worker of his led him to Christ, and my mom had been saved as a Methodist girl growing up in church. She had heard the gospel in her church as a kid. She got saved. My dad had never heard the gospel until his co-worker led him to the Lord. I was a toddler when that happened. So my dad thought, you know, we got to go somewhere they preach the Bible. So for years, he and my mom had been saved, but had not been discipled, had not been taught. They thought, why isn't anybody in our church teaching like this? So I am now 10 years old, and my parents thought, we got to find somewhere they're preaching the Bible. So we, my dad visited all kinds of churches. And finally, he took us to a church in New Jersey called Open Bible Baptist Church. Now, you'd figure with a name like that, they might open the Bible and study it, right? Now they did. And it was the only time I was ever at that church until later I would go back and preach there. But uh, I was a kid, 10 years old. We go to a church. They had about 1,000 people on a Sunday morning. So you figure, you got 230 campers here. Steph, we might have around 300 people in here. Think about a crowd three times this size. And we kind of had two main sections. We sat about on the middle aisle, halfway back. My dad is six foot seven. Okay, he's with the Lord now, but I'm 6'6", six, six, so my dad's taller than I am, right? So my dad's 6'7", and we come traipsing in, my two sisters, mom and dad. We sit down, and the pastor gets up to preach. First of all, I'm used to the minister wearing the black robe with the white collar, okay, very formal. And he preaches out of a manuscript, and uh, this preacher is in a coat and tie, and then he loosens his tie, and he's got his bios up. Open your bios with the book of John, and everybody starts turning pages. Have you ever heard when a thousand people are rustling through the Bible trying to find a place in the Scripture? It makes quite a noise, and all of a sudden, I'm ten, so my sisters are like eight and six. They hear the pages being turned, and my sisters said, Psst, Mom, Dad, is it raining? What's that noise? They had never heard the Bible being opened in, in church before. My dad hung his head. <laughs> We're the heathen family. We're the only ones there without a Bible. Everyone's looking at us like, must have been amusing. Like, here come the heathen to church, you know. And uh, that's the first time I heard the Bible being opened in church. Isn't that a pity? Some of you just take that for granted. That's why I tell you, I want so much for you to follow along like you're doing. I want you to open up the Bible. I want you to see it. Do not take for granted what you have in your hands, what you hold in your lap. It's the Word of God. So we're, we're there in church, hearing the Bible for the first time. I had never heard the Bible being preached. But that afternoon, long after church was over, my dad came into my room, and he had his Bible, his old hardbound copy of the Bible he'd been given as a kid in Sunday school. And he came into my room, he said, Rich, I want to talk to you. Now think about this, if you go to a church, they don't preach the Bible, and now your dad walks into your room carrying a Bible, what would you think? 
oh my word, I've done something and I don't know what it is. What have I done? Busted for what? I don't know. You know, dad walks into my room, says, uh, Rich, I want to talk to you. Oh, uh, okay. He said, sit on the bed. So dad's 6'7", all right? I'm a 10-year-old kid. I have a little twin bed. My dad says, now, and now I'm kind of leaning over toward my dad because he's 260 pounds and I am not. And so I'm sitting there next to my dad and he opens up to this passage in John chapter 3. He said, Rich, I want to talk to you about some things we learned in church today. He said, Richie, have you ever sinned? Oh, now I'm sure I'm in trouble. Uh, yes, Dad. He said, do you know what sin is? Uh, yeah. He said, can you give me some examples? I said, well, murder and stealing. He said, well, yeah, those are sins. But he said, can you think of some things you've done that are wrong? Well, I've lied. I've talked back to you and Mom. I've disobeyed. I've fought with my sisters. I've said bad words. I even used God's name like a cuss word. You know, it's amazing. I knew all that stuff was bad, but I'd never thought of it as being sin against God until that day. I am now under deep conviction of sin. That is very necessary for a person being saved. They need to understand their guilt before God before they'll receive the grace of God. That's why the Bible says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. The conscience is convicted through God's character, His righteousness. So here I am under conviction. And my dad says, uh, Richie, here's the problem. The Bible says your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Separated. So he said, tell me this, son. And you all would know the answer to this. Okay, I was the kid who didn't grow up in a Bible preaching church. I knew the answer to this. My dad said, where does God live? Heaven. So here's the problem. If you die separated from God because of your sin, then where could you not go when you die? Heaven. So where would you go if you die separated from God? I didn't even want to say it. I'd only heard people use it like a cuss word. I knew the place was real. I just kind of pointed downward. And he said, well, that's right, Richie. There is a hell. Now, when people use the word hell in proper context, they're not cussing. Just like when I'm referring to God, I'm not cussing. If I said, oh my, and then I said God, that would be profanity because you're not using his name reverently, okay? When I'm talking about hell, I'm not cussing. But if you said to somebody, why don't you just go to, and then you said that? That's the worst possible thing you could wish on a person. There is nowhere worse than hell. And I'm under the realization that day, oh man, if I die separated from God by my sin, not only am I not going to heaven when I die, I'm headed for hell. There are only two places, according to the Bible, after you die. There's heaven and hell. And I heard that and I said, Dad, I don't want to go there. He said, well, Rich, I don't want you to go to hell either. He said, but thankfully, God doesn't want you to go to hell. And he took me to John chapter 3, started reading what I have just read to you, and we got down to... Um, Verse number four, where Jesus, or Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he's old? Jesus used the term born again. I mean, does he go back into his mother's womb and be born? That's impossible. A full grown adult having a second birth? What do you mean? Look at verse five. Jesus answered, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. And notice the Spirit is capitalized. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Let me explain to you what he's talking about here is the contrast between the physical and the spiritual birth. Okay, the first time you come into the world, you come in, uh, your mother carries you in the womb for nine months, and there is 
an expression ladies use like, oh no, my water just broke. Gentlemen, when your wife says that, you better be on your way to the hospital or the midwife better be on the way, all right? My water just broke. The mom has a baby. The baby may weigh, you know, seven to nine pounds or whatever, but the mom will put on weight <laughs> eating for two, you know? Well, actually what's happening is there is a uh, protective sack of water that protects the baby. So when it's time for the baby to be born, the water breaks. That's the very physical picture of water. That's the first birth and spirit. Some people say, well, I thought water was baptism. Some may tell you, the Bible does not teach it, that you've got to be baptized to go to heaven. That is not what the Bible teaches. Let me tell you why I say, oh, it's because you're a Baptist. No, one of the reasons I became a Baptist, but it's not baptism that gets you to heaven. It's like uh, this. This ring tells you something about me. You never met me, some of you, till yesterday, but you know what about me? I'm married. My wife's name's Angela. I haven't even shown you a picture of her. She's beautiful. I married out of my league. If I uh, took off my ring, would I still be married? Yes. If I gave my ring to one of these guys, would they be married? No. The ring without a relationship means nothing. A couple of high school kids run off to the pawn shop, buy a couple of wedding rings, and then go shack up in a hotel somewhere. It doesn't mean they're married just because they put on rings, right? Ring without a relationship means nothing. Baptism without being born again doesn't mean anything. But baptism like this ring is a very important picture. It says that I've died with Jesus Christ, I was buried to my old life, and I'm risen with him to walk in a whole new life. That's what baptism pictures. But baptism doesn't save you. How do I know that? John chapter 4, Jesus was in a certain place baptizing, and then the scripture says, Howbeit, Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. Uh, in the uh, Pauline epistles, Paul says, I, I thank God I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, he names a couple. Listen, if baptism were the way somebody would get to heaven, Paul and Jesus would have baptized everybody they possibly could. It's not what gets you to heaven. The gospel is what gets you to heaven. Jesus Christ is who gets you to heaven. So that's important you understand that. Oh yeah, I'm going to heaven. I was baptized. No, no, you're not going to heaven because you're baptized. You can only go to heaven being born again. So what does that mean? Verse 7, he goes on to say, again, verily, verily, I say unto you, you must be born again. And then he goes on to explain it. Look at John 3.16. My dad said, Rich, what did God do so you could be forgiven? And it's like the lights. You remember as a kid, you ever do connect the dots? Okay, and you start off a picture, and uh, you're drawing, and, and, and you're like at 8, 9, 10, you say, what is this? But you get around to like 53, 54, 55, and all of a sudden, oh yeah, you already know where this is going, right? You've connected enough dots to see the picture. In my mind, I was connecting the dots. Oh, I'm a, God, I'm a rotten sinner, but God did something about that. My dad said, what did God do to save you? I said, Jesus died for me. Here it is, John 3.16, the Mount Everest of the Bible. Look with me at, at John 3.16. For, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Incredible. Some people say, oh, you Christians, you all have this idea, you either accept Jesus or God will send you to hell. No. What? No. No, it's not you accept Jesus or else God will send you to hell. No, you and I are already on our way to hell. God didn't send Jesus into this world saying, okay, now you either get on the Jesus bandwagon or I'm going to fry you. 
No, he said, you're already destined to eternal hell. That's why I'm sending Jesus. He didn't send him into the world to condemn the world. He sent him to save the sinner, to rescue me from my horrible reputation and offenses against God. Listen, I want to speak for me right now. I know this. That day I'm talking to my dad. I came to the full realization. If I get what I deserve when I die, I go straight to hell the moment I die. What have you done? The Bible says, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. And here I am under the conviction of my sin, realizing Jesus died and was buried and rose again, not just as some incredible fact of history. That is the one and only means by which I can be saved. It's the only means by which you can be saved. My dad said, what did, what did God do to save you, Rich? I said, Jesus died on the cross. He said, why? Did he do anything wrong? No. Why did he die on the cross? For my sins, Dad. He said, that's right. When they nailed those nails through the base of his hand, when they crowned him with thorns and his, his head was just covered with blood, they pummeled his face with their fists. When they nailed those feet to the cross, when they later, after he died, they thrust the spear into his side to prove that he was already dead. When all that happened, you know why? It wasn't for anything wrong he'd done. It was for me. It was for you that Jesus did that. My dad said, so after he died, what happened? I said, well, he, they put him in the grave. He said, how long was he there? I, I knew that. Well, three days, three nights. He said, then what happened? He rose again. My dad said, son, the Bible says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. He said, Rich, would you like to be saved? I said, yes, Dad. What do I do? He said, well, thankfully, Jesus already did everything. You just accept it. And I remember this, gang. We, we knelt by my bed there. And Dad's kneeling next to me. And I, uh, I bowed my head. Now, again, I was 10, Okay. I don't remember exactly the words, but it was so dramatic a moment. I remember all kinds of details about it. I remember praying along these lines. Dear God, I, I know I'm a sinner. I'm a bad sinner. I've said bad words and even used your name like a bad word. I've disobeyed my parents and I've gotten fights with my sisters and I've lost my temper and I've done I've done stuff that I'm bad God and I'm sorry for my sin I believe that Jesus died I believe he died for me and I believe he rose again I believe that and now God would you please save me because of what Jesus did for me amen and that day February the 12th 1977 that day, I was born again. I'm, I'm 55 years old. I've been saved for 45 years. That's the day I came to the Lord. I want to tell you something. That is the most important day of my life. Some of you may say, I don't remember the date. You know, there are people around the world that they, they grew up in a culture where they don't have birth certificates. They don't know the actual day they were born. But I want to tell you something. Everybody was born at a certain point in time and likewise, if you're born again, it happens at a point in time where your trust is placed totally in Jesus Christ. You didn't, well, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When we first started going to a Bible preaching church, I remember for, for uh, birthday celebrations, they'd have you come up and they'd sing this little song. Happy birthday to you. Only one will not do. Born again means salvation. How many have you? They're not asking how old you were. How many birthdays have you had? 
There was a physical birth, and then there was a spiritual birth. My physical birth was October 9th, 1966. I'm an October kid. Okay, that's when I was born physically. My spiritual birth was February 12th, 1977. I've got daughters who were saved early. One of them doesn't know the exact date she was saved. I remember the occasion. She, but we, we couldn't go back and nail down the date, but she remembers. You may not know the date. The date's not the issue. But the event is the issue. Has there been a day that you've been born again? There is so much more in the Bible that I wanted to cover. Again, I only took you to the Mount Everest of John. I wanted to take you in John chapter 5 and show the, the witnesses to Jesus' life. I wanted to take you to John chapter 8 where he says, Before Abraham was, I am. You know what I'd love to see you do? I'm going to talk this afternoon about making a commitment this year to getting your Bible every day. Some of you might want to live in the book of John this year. You might want to do what I want to do, or what I went ahead and did in 2017, just living in it, reading it over and over again but not just as an academic study. Think about this. About 2,000 years ago, Joseph and Mary were told they were going to have a baby. Now, this is in a day before sonograms and before baby books. Before sonograms, they knew they were having a boy. Before baby books, they didn't have to pick it up. They were told, you call his name Jesus. That means Jehovah saves. Call him Emmanuel. That means God with us. Think about this. We don't know his hair color. We don't know his eye color. We don't know his height or his weight. We don't know his DNA, although we do know he was an XY chromosome. He was a male. We don't know his blood type, but what I can tell you, we know that his blood was sufficient to save you or me from our sins. We don't know what his voice sounded like, but it was so powerful it spoke the worlds into existence. We don't know much about Jesus in his earthly life, but we do know this. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day, every knee will bow to Him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I like what one guy said years ago. I've repeated it very often. You may meet me and forget me, and if so, you've lost nothing. But if you meet Jesus Christ and forget Him, you've lost everything. I don't care if you go home from camp and can't remember. Who's that tall guy, that preacher we had? That's fine. But friend, if you meet Jesus Christ and forget Him, you're lost, and you've lost everything.